uh, called this week Ezekiel chapter 22, The Self-Destructing Nation. Doesn't sound very positive, does it? But we get some good stuff out of this. So just pray quickly. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to meet again. Lord, the promise in your word is that your Holy Spirit will teach us from your word. And we pray that you will open our hearts to understand what your word is saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's do a memory verse. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Okay, so where are we up to now? Last week, we saw God give another warning to the people of Judah that the Babylonian army was on the way. Now, you might be thinking that this promised exceedingly terrifying and severe judgment, like starvation, eating your babies and all that kind of stuff, is a bit over the top. I mean, Judah was similar to the other nations. So why was God going to judge them so severely? Well, one reason is that they were the people of God. They had more responsibility. They had um, greater accountability. But also, God lets us know exactly what they are like. He gives us a moral checklist just to show us how depraved, morally depraved, the nation had become. Now, the shocking thing is that the moral rot described in this chapter is basically the same as reading the newspaper today. <laughs> so you read the newspaper today and you will see the same sins promoted in today's society. Basically, our Western world and probably the whole world is speeding down this road of self-destruction caused by moral rot. Okay, We are becoming less and less godly and we're going to find out why later on. Now, without repentance, there's no hope. But what happened with Nineveh? Jonah went there and he said, repent. Forty days, God will destroy you. Repent. And they did. They covered themselves from the king down to the animals with sackcloth and went without food and water and they genuinely repented. And God didn't destroy them. So we can be praying for our nation for repentance. But one thing that we do know is that we have not learned from history. Every empire that has gone before has failed because of moral rot. They've destroyed themselves with their homosexuality, their drug taking, their sexual immorality, all those things. And I'm just going to read a passage from Romans 2, 1 to 11, which kind of summarizes this before we get into our main passage in Ezekiel. So it says this, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, 
Why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin, to repent? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. And that's what we'll see today in Ezekiel. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So just to break down our passage in Ezekiel chapter 22, Three sections, the sins of Jerusalem, Israel in the furnace, and the sins of the leaders. So let's just jump in, read verses 1 to 16. This is the sins of Jerusalem. This is that moral checklist I was talking about, which shows just how far they had gone down the road to self-destruction caused by moral moral decay. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Now, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Yes, show her all her abominations. Then say, thus says the Lord God, the city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come, that is, for judgment. And she makes idols within herself to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed, and have defiled yourself with the idols which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near, and have come to the end of your years. Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. Those near and those far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult. Look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you they have made light of mother and father. In your midst they have oppressed the stranger. In you they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst they commit lewdness or sexual immorality. In you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbours by extortion and have forgotten me. We'll come back, that's really important, says the Lord God. Behold, therefore, I beat my fist at the dishonest profit which you have made and at the bloodshed which has been in your midst. Can your heart endure or can your hands remain strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the nations, disperse you throughout the countries, and remove your filthiness completely from you. 
you shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So let's jump into verses 1 to 5. We'll read those again. And I've titled this bit, Jerusalem, the bloody city, brings judgment on herself. So, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Now, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Yes, show her all her abominations. Then say, Thus says the Lord God, The city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come, and she makes idols within herself to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed, and have defiled yourself with the idols which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near, and have come near to the end of your years. Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations, and a mockery to all countries. Those near and those far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult. So, what do we notice as we read through this? Lots of blood, yeah? So he calls it the bloody city. It's a complete disregard for human life. And just to quote a bit from verse 3 and 4, the city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come, and she makes idols within herself to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed. So the injustice has led to death and violence, especially of the righteous, the babies and the sick and the elderly. And Stephen in the New Testament says of Jerusalem when recounting her sordid history, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Acts 7.52 And God also spoke through Jeremiah saying, They have built pagan shrines to Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And there they sacrificed their sons and daughters to Moloch. I have never commanded such a horrible deed. It never even crossed my mind to command such a thing. What an incredible evil causing Judah to sin so greatly. So what's the parallel to that in our culture? Do we have statues where we put our babies and and watch them sizzle? No, we don't do that. What do we do instead? Yeah, we go to an abortion clinic, don't we? Yeah, that's how we kill our babies in our culture. We're guilty of shedding blood. And also we have euthanasia or assisted suicide, this agenda. What's it all about? Well, if you dig a bit deeper, it's all about population control. I'll let you guys look into that. Now, as an example of the lawlessness, well, in America, those who are pro-life are being arrested for praying outside of abortion clinics, but those who are pro-death are getting away with firebombing the pro-life pregnancy centres and other violent acts towards those who are pro-life. Doesn't sound right, does it? But that's where we're at now in our society. We are becoming more and more lawless, just like Judah was in the time of Ezekiel. Also consider the great push we have in our Western culture to legalise abortion up to birth. Now, it's not hidden. Those who are promoting these things got into these positions of authority by popular vote. We voted them in. Well, I didn't. <laughs> but I'm talking about the nation, right? The majority of people are for this. They want abortion. They want blood spilt. So we are, as a nation, right for judgment. Now, I just want to point out that you know, we will suffer a little bit because of the sins of our nation, but the judgment that's coming upon the world, when God does judge the world for all these sins, the tribulation, thankfully the church, I believe, will be taken away up to heaven before that in what we call the rapture. 
because God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. Now in verses 4 and 5, Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. Now, do any of you have any respect for America right now? I don't really have any respect for my own government. The lack of prestige and honour Western countries have now is because our leaders are weak and people pleasers. They'll do whatever it takes to stay in power, regardless of what it costs the nation. The Western countries have become toothless tigers, and they care more about saving and worshipping Gaia, that is Mother Earth, than about the well-being of their citizens. You know the green agenda? So that's what our governments are up to now, and that's why no one in the world really respects them. They're mocked. Now we move on to verses 6 through 12, and I've titled this Israel's Corrupt Leadership. It says, Look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you they have made light of father and mother. In your midst they have oppressed the stranger. In you they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst they commit lewdness. And in, in you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood. In you you take usury and increase, that is charging excess interest, high rates of interest. And you have made profit from your neighbours by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. Now, the words there, you have forgotten me, are really important. Why? It's because they've forgotten God that they've gone down this path. This is the reason that the people are committing all these sins listed beforehand. Now, compare this to our world today. Our world and our nation is purposefully forgetting God. God has been removed from our schools, the legal system, politics and all kinds of media. So where God and his righteousness are rejected and cast aside, corruption and lawlessness become established. So let's look at some of the fruits or consequences of rejecting God. And we get it from the passage before us and also by reading the newspaper. So we have the abuse of power by leaders to oppress and kill people the mistreatment of orphans and widows, the rejection of choosing what is good and right, lies and slander, idol worship involving sexual immorality and the killing of babies, rape, incest, homosexuality, bribes and injustice and economic extortion. And something I didn't put in there is you have made light of father and mother. So the lack of authority in the home and also the breakdown of the family. So that's something else to consider now moving on to verses 13 through 16 this is god's judgment against the corrupt leaders behold therefore i beat my fists at the dishonest prophet which you have made and at the bloodshed which has been in your midst can your heart endure or can your hands remain strong in the days when i shall deal with you i the lord have spoken and will do it i will scatter you among the nations disperse you throughout the countries, and remove your filthiness completely from you. You shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations, then you shall know that I am the Lord. So verse 13, Behold, therefore I beat my fist at the dishonest prophet which you have made, 
and the bloodshed which has been made in your midst. So, does God like injustice? No. God is really angry at injustice. Okay? Do you guys get angry when things aren't fair? Alright? Well, God more so. God is really, really angered by the way that the poor and the needy and the widows and the babies are treated, you know? It grieves him deeply. It makes him very angry. So if our emotions toward this kind of injustice are strong, how much stronger are God's emotions? We're made in the image of God. We feel these things because we are like him. We have the same kind of desire for justice, for fairness, for equity. And, you know, personally I feel sorry for the wicked leaders as they will have to give an account of their poor and selfish leadership to God. So, don't get angry. Just pray for them. For God to show mercy to them. Now, in verse 14, Can your heart endure or can your hands remain strong in the days when I should deal with you? Now, a very sobering question, yeah? Can you endure the judgment of God? We are all going to face God, true? Now, without Christ as our propitiation, and that word just means our sacrifice, who died in our place and absorbed the full and complete wrath of God against sin, we would not stand. It's only because of the blood of the Passover lamb that God's wrath passes over us. So if we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are covered by his blood. His blood washes away our sins. We are in Christ. So the leaders of this world consider themselves to be so strong and powerful and untouchable. They have their bodyguards, they have their money, they have their big homes with their gates and security guards. But they are just weak fools who are blind to the majesty, holiness and power of God. God put them there. Romans 13 tells us that, right? God put the leaders there. We need to honour that. But they are weak fools and they don't understand that they will have to stand before God. And they will not stand. And then verse 16, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So again, God's judgments are not punitive. They're not designed just to make you suffer because you've done the wrong thing. But they're designed to bring us back into relationship with God. And so we can know him and submit to him as Lord. And so those who refuse to know God by his blessings would know him by his discipline. So we can either choose to submit to him and we can experience the blessings of abiding in him and walking with him or we'll know and experience God as he disciplines us. Now we move to part two, which is Israel in the furnace, verses 17 to 22. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. They are all bronze, tin, iron, and lead in the midst of a furnace. They have become dross from silver. So here's the image of refining metals. The dross is the waste. The dross is what you throw away. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem, as men gather silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into the midst of a furnace to blow fire on it, to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there and melt you. Yes, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, 
and you shall be melted in its midst. As silver is melted in the midst of a furnace, so shall you be melted in its midst. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury on you. So, verse 17, it says, The house of Israel has become dross to me. Now, when God made the nation of Israel, and they were walking with him, they could be compared to a precious metal. Valuable, um, respected, treasured. Now, God says, there's nothing valuable left in you. You just dross. Like, you just like the waste that is discarded when refining gold and silver. So this is what happened to Israel nationally, and it can happen to us personally and as a church as well. When we allow sin in the camp, so to speak, when we start to live for ourselves, we become like dross. We become like the waste. The impurities. There's no value in what we do, and our character is basically base or worthless. And that's what Israel was like. And in verse 19 it says, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. Now, so as a Babylonian army is coming, what's happening? All the people in the villages surrounding Jerusalem, they run to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonian army. And they think, we'll be safe in Jerusalem. (laughs) No, they won't. They are actually putting themselves into the middle of God's furnace of judgment and purification where they would experience extreme suffering, the sword, hunger and disease. And earlier, you know, many weeks ago we covered this. One third by the sword, one third by famine and one third by the disease. So basically it's not a good way to go. And a couple of quotes. In such an hour, the methods of patience and mercy are useless. It is only by the fiery furnace that the dross can be destroyed and the corrupted silver be recovered. That's by Morgan. And the Old Testament references to fire or furnace, example Deuteronomy 4.20, are symbols for excruciating pain and suffering. These also evoke the notion of fire as a purifying agent and of smelting as a way of spiritual regeneration. And compare Isaiah one twenty five. That's when water and hot. So basically, if our hearts become too hard, God will let us hit what we call rock bottom, where we have no more hope, we have nowhere to go, and then we have to look up. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other hope, and that's where God is taking the people of Israel. He's taking them to where they have no hope. They can put no hope in themselves or their circumstances. And so when we don't respond to his mercy and his patience, then God will use judgment to get our attention. Again, it's not punitive. It's for our good because he wants us to be in relationship with him and experience the blessings of being in relationship with him. Now, part three, the sins of the leaders. This is interesting. Verses 23 to 31, we go through it bit by bit. So first up is the sins of the prophets. And this is verses 23 to 25 and verse 28. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. 
They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her prophets plastered them with untempered water, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. So, there's lots of scriptures which talk about false prophets, and one of the characteristics of a false prophet is they will rip you off. Okay? They want your money. They will also tell you exactly what you want to hear. Now, what do the Israelites want to hear? You're going to beat the Babylonians. Yeah. Put your armor on. Go out and fight. And what happened? They got killed. They got slaughtered. Because whose side was God on? The Babylonians, right? They were his tool of judgment. And that's why it says there they have made many widows. A false prophecy destroys lives. And just because someone claims to be a prophet, it doesn't mean you need to believe them. Now, we go to the priests, the sins of the priests in verse 26. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have hidden their eyes from my service, so that I am profaned among them. So, the effect of false teaching, just to put this really simply and basically, is that people are not encouraged to repent. They're not encouraged to live a holy life. And so they end up living a sinful life. And that causes God's name to be blasphemed. And now we come to the sins of the leaders. Verse 27. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people and to get dishonest gain. So this is the effect of corrupt leadership. Instead of being faithful shepherds, leading the flock to good pasture and nurturing them, they were wolves devouring people to get rich. They used the people instead of caring for them. And now if we come to the sins of the people in verse 29. The people of the land have used oppression, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So what does this sound like? Well, for me, it's the lack of basic respect for human dignity. You know, people are treating each other with a lot of cruelty these days, a lot of violence, a lot of disrespect, and strangers are not cared for, they're just basically put down. So that's another sign of our times, that we're not looking after people, we're not seeking to build them up, instead we tear them down. And verse 29, God seeks a godly leader to steer the nation from evil. So this is verses 29 to 31. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. And just to pause here, we need to pray for godly leaders for our country. Have you seen in the Old Testament like people like Josiah who made a huge difference to the people of his time. He turned the country around single-handedly. So we need to pray for a godly leader, someone who was a strong leader and also a man of prayer. So, therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. 
And a quote from David Guzik. The man God sought was not only a builder, but just as importantly was a man of prayer. Like Abraham in Genesis 20 verse 7, and Moses in Exodus 32, 9-14, and David in 2 Samuel 24, 15-18, God looked for one who would, through prayer, stand in the gap between a holy God and his disobedient, rebellious, profane people. This man in the gap would fight and hopefully rescue God's people in prayer. So God is calling us all to live godly lives. It's not just for our sake. It's not just for our personal walk with Christ. It's for others as well. If we will keep ourselves pure, then God can use us to be leaders and we can steer our culture as God gives us grace to away from evil. And a verse from 2 Timothy 2.21, If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honourable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the Master to use you for every good work. Again, consider the amazing positive influence godly leaders have had in the past in different countries. Now, we come to an application. In verse 12 it said, But you have forgotten me. Now, we can say to the Jewish people, Oh, naughty, naughty, you shouldn't do that. But the whole reason they were in that mess was they had forgotten God. Now, as a believer... I too can forget God and live for myself while still pretending to live for Christ, just like the Jews did in Ezekiel's day. Like them, I can go through all the outward motions of serving God, but if the affections of my heart are elsewhere, I have forgotten God. I can read my Bible every morning, but if I don't obey it, then I have forgotten God. I can have an emotional experience during worship, but if I've not submitted to God, I have forgotten God. I can do acts of service and evangelize, but if I am doing it for my own self-fulfillment and recognition from others, I have forgotten God. So the only way to overcome this sinful nature tendency that we all have to forget God and live for ourselves is to make a determined effort not to forget Him. Now, quick example in my own life. I memorized a chunk of Romans 8 because it helped me in my fight against sin. It's a great passage to memorize, by the way. But I neglected to practice it. So what happened after a period of time? When I went to use it, when I wanted to fight that sin, it was gone. So what did I have to do? I had to go back and relearn it. Yeah, I'd forgotten it. Why? Because I hadn't been going back and keeping it in my head, yeah? So, now, understanding my brain, if I don't keep reciting and practicing my memory verses, then I will lose them. I will forget them. And so what I do is, basically once a week, go through the memory verses that are pertinent for me at the time to fight the battles that I'm currently facing. They're my shield of faith, yeah? Ephesians 6.16. And I do that so I won't forget them, because I know that if I don't, I will. Now, simply put, neglecting God's word is forgetting God. Why? I'm going to go through a few verses from Psalm 119 and see if you can spot the common theme 
in the following verses. Okay, in verse 16, and these are all from Psalm 119. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. For I have become like a wineskin in smoke that is dry and withered. Yet I do not forget your statutes, or your word, right? I will never forget your precepts, your word, for by them you have given me life. My life is continually in my hand or in danger, yet I do not forget your law, your word. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts, your word. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law, your word. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments, your word. Did you see the common theme in there? What was the psalmist doing? He was making a concerted effort, a deliberate decision to not forget the word of God. So whose responsibility is it? Yeah, it's our responsibility, yeah. So abiding in the word and staying close to God is his responsibility and it's also my responsibility. I can't do it for you, you can't do it for me. But some might say, isn't this legalism or works, trying to make yourself right in God's sight? Well, I don't think so. It can be if you do it with the wrong motive, and we'll go through that in a minute. But this is our responsibility, and I'll show you why. Jesus tells us that abiding in him and his word is our responsibility. John 15, verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So, what does it say? If you abide in me. Yeah? Now, talking about am I doing it on my own strength or not? Philippians gives us a bit of help to understand this. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you stop there, it'd be like, I give up, I can't do this, right? But then you read the next verse. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we simply work out what God has already worked in us. He's already put the desires there. And the Amplified Bible makes this really clear. So I'm reading those same verses from the Amplified Bible. Work out, cultivate, carry out to the goal, and fully complete your own salvation with reverence and awe and trembling, that is, self-distrust, with serious caution, tenderness of conscience, watchfulness against temptation, timidly shrinking from whatever might offend God and discredit the name of Christ. And verse 13, Not in your own strength, for it is God who is all the while effectually at work in you, energizing and creating in you the power and desire both to will and to work for his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. So, as a disciple of Christ, I am responding to God because of all he has already done for me, yeah? I'm responding to his grace, mercy, and loving kindness that I experienced and received when I was first saved. And Ephesians 1.3 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, that is past tense, blessed us with 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with or in Christ. And one of my favorite verses and one another one I've memorized is 2 Peter 1, 3-5. By his divine power, God has, again, past tense, given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. That is our sinful nature, right? In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. You're not earning God's promises, his favor. You're responding to them. They're already given to you. you just got to use it. And what's our motive for responding to God? There's no greater motive than the cross, right? And if Jesus' substitute death on the cross in my place is not enough to motivate me to obedience, then nothing will. And a quote from John Stott who's uh, brought this home for me. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing. Your curse I am suffering. Your debt I am paying. Your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. So whatever good we might have thought we were, we look at the cross and we realize, uh, you know, I'm just a sinful wretch. I'm wretched. I needed to be saved. I'm a sinner who needed to be saved. I have a sinful nature which was anti-God, against God. And Jesus had to rescue me. So in contrast, legalism or works is trying to earn God's grace, mercy and loving kindness. So this works-based religion tries to appease God or manipulate him. Basically, if I do this for you, then you, God, are obligated to do this for me. But that's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about responding to God's promises. So as a believer, God has already given me the desire to be in his word. It's now up to me to respond. Will I obey God by following that desire? Will I listen to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit as he leads me to greater intimacy with God? Or will I ignore him and do nothing? Will I forget God? There's no neutral ground. Not having a dedicated and resolute plan to remember and meditate on God's word is actually choosing to forget. Even if I have good intentions to meditate on the word. Why? Because if I don't make the conscious and deliberate decision to forsake the world and follow Christ, then I won't. It's as simple as that. So, again, legalism is trying to get right with God on our own strength. However, our responsibility as Christians is simply to follow and obey the urges and desires that God has already put in us as a part of our new nature. We're doing it by His strength. But God will never force us to love Him. You know, someone said, forced love is rape. Rather, God always gives us a free choice to be as close to him as we choose to be. And another quote from John Stott, we are, each one of us, at this moment, as close to God as we choose to be. So, boundaries. 
in any relationship there are boundaries and these boundaries define our relationships. So just kind of skirting around this, this whole thing of forgetting God and, and what's my responsibility, yeah? So boundaries define our relationships. Being aware of and taking responsibility for my own choices is fundamental to any healthy relationship. Now, you know, with your friends and your family, if you don't take responsibility for your own choices, then relationships suffer, don't they? Yeah? If you make other people responsible for the decisions you make, then it doesn't work. So, often I'm like Adam and Eve, refusing to take personal responsibility for my decisions, and I end up blaming God instead. God, how could you let me get into this mess? We might say. So, therefore, I must not ask God to do something for me that he's already empowered me to do. I must take personal responsibility for the choices that define my part of my relationship with God. So, James tells us what some of our individual or personal responsibilities are. What is my role or my part in my relationship with God? What has the Spirit living in me already equipped me and empowered me to do. And I thought of this example. The gun is aimed and loaded and all I have to do is pull the trigger. Now it's aimed at a particular sin or it's aimed at this part of my life which is not submitted to God. Now, have I had to aim the gun? No. Have I had to load it? Have I had to make the gun? No, it's all there. But all I have to do is boom. The question is, will I pull the trigger and put to death that sin that I'm struggling with, or will I leave the gun and go round to that sin and start to enjoy it? See, God has given us a power to overcome the sin. But we don't use the power. We just keep enjoying the sin. So James tells us what our responsibilities are as a believer and in our relationship with God these boundaries that we've been talking about. He says in James 4, 7-10, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So what are some of the responsibilities that define my side of my relationship with God? Well, I must choose to, willingly choose to, submit to God. I must choose to draw near to God, to cleanse my hands, to purify my heart, to mourn over my sin, and to humble myself in the sight of the Lord. This is my responsibility. Again, God has given us the will and the power to do it, but I need to actually pull the trigger, so to speak, yeah? So I want to move into another example, overcoming temptation, and just to show that God has already provided the way out. So 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So. We look at that verse and we go, great, you know, I can overcome any temptation, but why don't we? <laughs> Have you asked yourself that question? Why do I keep doing the same things again and again and again? 
Well, the only reason I failed to take the way of escape is that I have not prepared my heart to do so. I have not died to self. I have not put to death the deeds of my sinful nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. See Romans 8.13 I have not submitted that part of my sinful nature to God. Therefore I have lost the battle before I even start. Does it make sense? If I have not submitted that part of my life to God, then it's won already. Next time that temptation comes, I'll fall. So it takes faith to overcome temptation. But if I'm not in the Word of God, then my faith won't grow. Romans 10.17 And I'll be too weak to overcome the temptation. I have a defective or non-existent shield of faith. You see that? So Jesus is our example. In Gethsemane, Jesus submitted his will to the Father. Jesus' prayer was something like this. Father, help me submit to you so that I only do what you want and not what I want. So he gained the strength to endure the trial before he even faced the trial. He had defeated the temptation before it had even happened because he had prepared his heart to seek the Father by first submitting his will to God's. So I just read what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane from Luke 22, 39-46. There's a lot of instruction here for us how we can overcome temptation as Jesus models it for us here. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, what did he say? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, what does it mean to enter into? Well, begin to experience, move into, pay a visit, come into. Okay. So, how do we avoid temptation? starts by prayer. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Again, rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. If we're not men and women of prayer, we will enter into temptation, yeah? The way out is there, but we need to prepare our hearts to seek him. So, As we read the account, we find Jesus followed his own advice. Now, what was Jesus' temptation? What was he having to submit to? He was perfect. Why was he having to submit to the Father? And just before I answer that question, consider what Jesus' submission to the Father looked like. It didn't come easy. There was literal blood, sweat and tears. Now, for me, if I'm not willing to go through this agony of self-denial and saying, God, please change my 
desires. God, please help me to surrender to you. God, help me to put you first in this area of my life to do what you want and not what I want. Then I'm not going to overcome my sin. And again, no one ever said that dying to self was easy. But if I want to live for God, I must first die to self. So, what was Jesus having to overcome? Well, I was thinking about it, and if we're in a life and death situation, what are we thinking about? How do I survive? How do I stay alive, yeah? Jesus was a man. He was a human. He had in him this proclivity for self-preservation. And that's why this was Jesus' greatest test. The greatest desire we have is to live. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So Jesus was submitting his desire to live to the Father and saying, Father, I submit my desire to live to you. I give you permission to take my life. And so Jesus literally gave his life in his struggle against the natural desires of his human nature. So very similar to us. And we see this in Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. Think of all the hostility Jesus endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. What's that referring to? When did Jesus give his life in his struggle against sin? Well, he was perfect. It wasn't against sin so much, but for us it's against sin. But he against the desire to save his life. He gave that up. He submitted that to God. And that Jesus understands our struggle, Hebrews 4, 15-16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So God knows how hard it is for him to submit his desire to live and save his own life to the Father. It required great prayer and agony. For us to overcome our sin, to overcome the things in our lives which are holding us back from following the Lord more fully, it's going to take great struggle. We have not given our lives in our struggle against sin. So if we would just prepare our hearts to seek the Lord by praying to him and asking for his power and grace to overcome the evil desires of a sinful nature, we would prevail over the sin. But this surrender or death to self takes work. It's not easy to give up what our sinful nature loves, but it's the only way. So. I'm going to go to the Old Testament and there's a really good example of what this looks like outwardly to show what must happen inwardly for us. Remember Israel, everything's on the outside. It's a physical picture of what happens as God works with his people. But for us, of course, it's all in our heart. Okay. So like Jesus had to pray three times before his heart was fully submitted to the Father, so the Israelites had to pray and unlike Jesus, but also like us, they also had to repent of their sins. 
So as we read the account in 1 Samuel 7, 3 through to 13, notice how the people had to do something if they were going to overcome the enemy. What was their responsibility in their relationship with God? And think of the enemies in the promised land as a type or picture of the evil world system, our sinful nature and the devil, the three things we fight against, we struggle with in this world, in this life. So 1 Samuel 7, 3 through 13, Israel defeats their enemy, the Philistines. In the context here, they were being oppressed by the Philistines. Basically, the Philistines were an enemy nation and they had basically put garrisons all through the land and were telling what they could and couldn't do you know, taxing them heavily and taking all the good things from the land and their lives were miserable. So then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. You see their responsibility in that relationship? So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, Gather all of Israel to Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and in a great ceremony drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. Then they also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. Now remember what James said? What's our responsibility? To mourn over our sin? That's what they're doing right here. When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines. So what are they doing? They're continuing in prayer. They've made changes but now the Philistines are approaching. The temptation is coming. Can they stop? Can they relax? No. They've got to keep praying. So they begged Samuel. And this is, again, demonstrating continued reliance on God in prayer. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. <laughs> then the men of Israel chased them from Mitzpah to a place below Bethkar, slaughtering them all along the way. There you go. Sin destroyed. <laughs> so to speak, right? Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshana, he named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help, for he said, up to this point the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel again for some time. So the whole point here is that God will help us, but what do we need to do first? What's our responsibility in this relationship? To seek him with our whole heart and to not forget, yeah? So the combined power of the world, the flesh and the devil are nothing compared to the power of God that dwells in us. He just has to yell, you know, whatever God did here. What did it say? But with a mighty voice of thunder. And they were ran. 
That's how easy it was. God just had to speak and the enemy's gone. Don't think that your sin is super powerful. Compared to God, it's nothing. But we must first submit if we're going to experience this power. And I just want to finish with Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Again, if we forget God, if we don't make the determined, conscious decision that, okay, what am I going to do to remember God? How am I going to center my life around the word of God and prayer and seeking him? If we don't do that, by default, we're forgetting him. It's as simple as that. And if we do that, we will end up going down this road of moral rot and we'll become overcome by our sin. We need to follow him with our whole heart and be willing to give up. Now, it's not going to happen all at once, but as time goes on, God will show you what needs to be given up, what needs to be changed. And then we go in prayer, like Jesus did, and we say, God, help me to give this up to you. In this area of my life, may I do what you want to do instead of what I want to do. And God will help you. And of course, there are some things you're just going to do. You know. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. So, you know, Practically speaking, there are some practical things we can do. If the problem's a TV, get rid of the TV. <laughs> you know, as an example. And I won't go on. So, Father, thank you for all the good things that you have given us. Lord, thank you for these promises. Thank you for the example of Jesus. He had to fight his, go against his, uh, the natural desires of his human nature, even though he had a perfect human nature. But he had to willingly give up his desire to live. And when he had done that, and he was submitted to the Father, when they took his life, there was no fight. He didn't cry out, he didn't complain. It was just gone. All that fight was gone. Sticking up for his own rights, he wasn't doing that. He had already submitted himself to the Father, given up those rights. Allowed the Father to do what he thought best. And so I pray that we can do the same thing, Lord, that we can submit ourselves to you. By prayer, we can fight these enemies. For Israel at that time, it was a Philistine. For us, it could be anything, any sin, any issue, any difficulty, Lord, that we would submit that to you and we would, by your power, overcome. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.